Well, brethren, we have, uh, once again, we've gone through uh, half the cycle of God's holy days. And we've completed Passover and uh, the Days of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost. And now we have celebrated the, well, the fulcrum point, the Feast of Trumpets being right in the middle. Three are past and three yet remain. Uh, the Day of Atonement, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Great Last Day. And it is because of those first three and what they represent for us, the first fruits, that the last three will actually be accomplished. Because, you see, we will have an integral role in making that happen with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we celebrated, of course, his return in the symbology of God's holy days just this past Thursday on the Feast of Trumpets. And so now we are counting time, as it were, for the Day of Atonement. So what I thought I'd like to do today is just to, uh, really to do what I like to do the most at the podium, and that is to expound a, a word or a phrase or a concept and really get in depth and, uh, and bring out whatever it is that God might have for us. And in light of the fact, of course, that the holy days are all about Jesus Christ. And you know, virtually every denomination, every stripe of Christian understands that. I've talked with Baptist ministers and Catholic priests who understand that the holy days do indeed point to Jesus Christ and reference him in various ways. Uh, so in, in that they know that, you'd think they'd teach their people about them, but of course, they think that's all done away. But the, the fact is, Jesus Christ is at the center of our faith, and his church is indeed Christ-centric, as is the Word. So I want to talk about Jesus Christ today, and perhaps we can learn some things about him and some theology of his along the way as we do some exploring. And uh, just to begin, turn with me, if you would, over to the book of Mark, chapter 4. Because I want to talk about the man and what kind of person he was, who he was, what was he all about, and some of the attributes that we see in him. And those around him, we're told, saw his, his glory, his, his doxa. The word is uh, usually translated as glory, but it means the persona, the the atmosphere that one gives off, the, the emanations of personality, all those kinds of things. And uh, certainly, the more we can know about the Lord Jesus Christ, the better off we are. The Apostle Paul said it was his goal to know him and the power of his resurrection. So in uh, Mark chapter 4, pardon me, it's happening already. I got that feeling in my throat. <clears> throat> You guys are probably tired of hearing me talk about it, but please pray for my, my throat condition. I've got quite an ambitious speaking schedule coming up, and uh, I would appreciate your, pray <coughs> your prayers. Uh, in Mark chapter 4, uh, there arose, verse 37, there arose a great storm on the Sea of Galilee, 
and the waves were beating into the ship so that it was full. It was about to sink. And the Lord was in the hinder part of the ship. He was asleep on a pillow, a cushion of some kind. And they awoke him and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Don't you care? And he arose and rebuked the wind. Now try to picture it in your mind if you can, this, this storm, this scenario, and the Lord Jesus Christ being roused out of a sound sleep. They had to wake him up. <laughs> and he rebuked the wind. And he said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Gives me goosebumps to read that. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, that's what I want to talk about. What, what manner of man do we profess to be following? The Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to start this by turning over to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Because there's a, a verse of scripture there that I want to uh, dig into a little bit. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. It says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, the heavenly klesis, as it is, which means to be called, or to be invited, or to be summoned. And I said we could touch upon some Christian theology along the way. And so we've been called. Jesus Christ said to his apostles and his disciples, You didn't choose me, I chose you. And nothing has changed. God still is in the equation, and God still does the calling. As a matter of fact, the Scripture teaches us that you cannot come to the Lord Jesus Christ unless the Father does indeed call you. He must draw you to him, and then he must actually present you to the care and keeping of the Lord Jesus Christ. He must give you to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it says here, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Well, the word consider is of great significance. It is katanoeo in the Greek, and it means to more fully comprehend, to more correctly perceive, to gain insight. It has all of those meanings. To gain insight, to more fully comprehend. So the Apostle Paul is telling us, let us more fully comprehend the Lord Jesus. That's a worthy task. And to further augment what we're doing, turn with me in your Bibles over to the second letter of Paul to the, uh, uh, Timothy, that is. Second Timothy. <coughs> because what I'm about to read and expound to you is what we're doing. And we're going to do it the way the Scripture tells us to do it. And all study of God's Word should be done this way. Breaking into the text of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, at verse 15, it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, 
a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So right off the top, we can see that studying God's word is something that he approves of. And when we do it, we can show ourselves approved unto him if we are rightly dividing the word. But there's another inference here that is unescapable. And it says you don't have to be ashamed if you're doing this. Clearly, we ought to understand that if we're not doing this as vessels of God's spirit, as students of God's word, as disciples of Christ, if we're not doing this, then shame on us. That's the implication here. Yes. But I want to expound some of these words to you because they have great significance. And it's when this is not followed that some misunderstanding can happen. The word here for approved in the Greek is dokimos, and it literally means to be trustworthy. As I've said so many times, it wasn't by accident that God chose the New Testament to be preserved for us in Greek. Greek is a rich and expressive language, and there are many nuances of understanding and variations of understanding that we can draw from God's Word, that we can do an exegetical study of God's Word, leaving the eisegesis out, allowing the exegesis of God's Word to really teach us. This means to be trustworthy. Study to show to God that you are trustworthy for God to reveal it to you and to give it to you, that you are trustworthy to have this knowledge, this precious knowledge, that you are trustworthy to deal with it honestly to be trustworthy. Study to show yourself trustworthy unto God. A workman, an ergotesi, not a novice, not an apprentice, but a competent worker, a skilled worker, someone who knows how to work, a journeyman. To make yourself equipped. Remember the scripture that tells us that we are to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us? You cannot do that without study. You cannot do that without knowing the doctrines. You cannot do that without being familiar with this word. You cannot do that unless you know Jesus Christ in print as well as in your prayer closet. And this word here for dividing is of great significance. The word is orthotomeo, orthotomeo, and it literally means to make an incision, to make a measured or straight line, to cut open. In other words, to open up God's word, to make an incision and go into it, literally, to divide the word, to divide it and go into it, to go in depth into, the God's, into God's word. To rightly divide it, to correctly understand it, you must go into it. And we have a concept that God's Word teaches us. Here a little and there a little. Comparing Scripture on all issues. Never allowing a doctrine to be formulated off of one Scripture alone, but considering all Scripture on any subject. And so we are to rightly divide the word. We are to make an incision. We are to orthotomeo and go into it. To make a precise cut, as it were. To precisely and correctly, as it were, go into God's word. And so with that then, brethren, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles, over to Matthew chapter 16. 
to begin to get some in-depth understanding about the one that we profess to follow, the one that we claim to be disciples of. In Matthew chapter 16, this is of great significance. Let us break into the text of Matthew chapter 16 at verse 13. Because it talks about when Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they, notice the word they, they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some say, is implied, that you are Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, the King James language is, 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 is beautiful to me. I grew up with it. It's not clumsy for me. For some people, it's a, it's a little bit clumsy. What's being implied here is that the people didn't actually think that the Lord Jesus Christ was Jeremiah. You know, they weren't simple-minded after all. They knew Jeremiah had been long dead. What's being referenced here is that he had, was someone who they were claiming had come in the spirit of Jeremiah or Ezekiel or one of the other prophets. That's what's implied, of course. And verse 15, he said unto them, but who do you say that I am? And that was of great significance because he's setting this up. And all through his ministry, the Lord is setting things up. He, he's not reactive to what's going on. He makes everything react to him all through his ministry, even up to the point where he breathed out his last ragged breath. He was fulfilling scripture and literally quoting scripture as he breathed out his last breath, making things happen that the scripture might be fulfilled. And here he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are Mashiach. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the anointed one. You are the one the prophets prophesied to come. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the Lord Jesus' answer here is of great significance. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The Lord implied with that statement that no flesh and blood, including he, had preempted that, 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 that Peter had not received that information from any source other than his father. Very, very significant. Because he goes on to tell us that he will build his church upon the truth, upon the premise here stated by Peter and by the Lord. And the premise is, yes, indeed, I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and you will get that deep insight, you will get that learning, that knowledge from my Father. Let me go on. I say unto thee that thou art Peter, a little pebble, as it were. Petros literally means uh, they were, they were the gravels and the small stones and the filling material, the rubble of other buildings that would be necessarily placed in an area where a foundation was being placed. And, and then a foundation would be uh, 
would be either laid by, by stone or they, uh, some kind of wooden structure, but the foundation itself would be a petra, not, not a petro. Very significant difference. And I'm, and I'm framing it this way because there's a great church extent in the world who claims that this is the scripture where Christ said that Peter was the rock upon which the church was built, of course. That, that's, you have to literally torture the Greek, mistranslate the words, and ignore the grammar to make something like that happen, of course. And it simply cannot happen because of feminine and neuter words here. I say unto you that you are Petros, a little tiny stone, a filler rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, in years gone by, the church taught that in all likelihood, when the Lord Jesus was answering them, and he made that statement that he probably was pointing to himself when he said, this is the rock. Well, there's a problem with that because of, again, with feminine and masculine words here. The Lord, I contend, would not have done that because it would have been grammatically incorrect, not only in Greek, but also in Aramaic or High Hebrew. What he's referring to, the feminine word that he's referring to, is truth. The truth being referenced here is that, yes, indeed, I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and you get that, like Peter did, you get that from my Father, and I will build my church upon this truth. That's the premise. And no one can come to his church, no one can be in his church, no one can come to Jesus Christ unless the Father starts the process and begins to draw you. This is a truth confirmed here in the Lord's words. I am indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and you get that profound in-depth understanding only from my Father. Now, there are, there are hundreds of millions of people worldwide who know that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But what the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about is what we find in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, I want to turn over there briefly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4. And haven't we all wondered why our friends and relatives don't see the things that we see very clear? Yeah. How many of us, when you first came into the church or first came into the knowledge of the church, managed to upset and, and perhaps make angry your friends and relatives because you were trying to get through to them and they just didn't get it. And maybe you were a little frustrated. Maybe you didn't do it with the aplomb and, and diplomacy that you might have used, all right? Did I do that, that noise? The rapture didn't happen, did it? I mean, we're all still here. Is it today when someone was saying the rapture was supposed to happen? Yeah. They've been saying that for two... They were saying it in Paul's day. Yeah. I'll tell you, when it happens, it's going to follow the scenario in this book and nothing else. Yes. 
But I wanted to uh, uh, spend a little time on this concept of, of understanding who the Lord Jesus Christ is because you cannot properly understand him to come to a proper and authentic uh, contrition and remorse and repentance from sin without this happening and without the Father illuminating the face, the real face, the real persona, the real doxa, the real glory of Jesus Christ, the Father has to be in that process. And that's what's being talked about here. But let me begin at verse 1 of what Paul is saying here in chapter 4. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. There's a lot of dishonest preaching. A lot of preaching is done ignorantly, and there's also a lot that's done dishonestly. And so we're preaching, uh, the, we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. And Paul comments about that and uses this phrase because that was going on big time in Paul's day. Deceitful preaching Dishonest preaching, mishandling of God's word, was ramping up and happening in Paul's day. And we could take the time to turn to the book of Galatians in chapter 1 and see that Paul expounds upon that concept and says, I'm amazed that you're all so soon removed from the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you've bought into another gospel, a perverted gospel, which is not authentic. My words, but that's what Paul was in effect saying, of course. But let me go on here. Not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, and indeed it is, it's hid. It was hid until something happened to you. It was hid from you. Wasn't it hid from you, David? It was hid from me. It was hid from all of us. We didn't come into this world possessing the knowledge of the truth. We were blinded by the God of this world, growing up in an environment that affects us and warps us to various degrees. And just let me pause long enough to say what I've always got a kick out of saying when I'm preaching. We were all deranged. We were all nuts. It's a matter of degrees. And no one has escaped that except Jesus Christ. The God of this world, from the Garden of Eden right up to this present day, has molested the mind, the psyche, the emotions, and in some cases, such as Job's, even the body of everyone who's ever lived, with except Jesus Christ. And it has affected you, and it has affected me. And now, with the acquisition of God's Holy Spirit, we begin to acquire the mind of Christ, which the Bible defines as sanity, a power, the love, and soundness of mind, and now we're moving towards sanity. I'm more sane now than I used to be. Sandy, hush. <laughs> we're moving towards sanity now. And, and there really is no better way to describe the, the Christian experience of what conversion is. We're moving from the twisted, warped perspectives that we all had caused by growing up in a world ruled by the God of this world. And maybe, maybe your daddy whipped you too much. Maybe he didn't whip you enough. <laughs> but 
Maybe you were mistreated. Maybe you had all kinds of things happen. Who knows? We all have a story. But we were all affected. It's a matter of degrees. And I see a lot of people shaking your heads. You're you're buying this, aren't you? (laughs) Because you're remembering. Yes, absolutely. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are, I'm reading from the King James again, to them that are lost. And what's being referenced is, which becomes apparent as you continue to read, lost to the present truths, lost to the light here being expounded, not already prejudged and lost to the lake of fire. That would be contrary to everything this book teaches about judgment. It's talking about lost to the truth here being referenced because it's been hid by the God of this world. If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Why don't they believe? Because just like you, prior to God turning the light on, you were blinded. You were blinded to the truth. Yes, indeed. And, and God the Father's light is such that it's bright enough to shine through the darkness. Satan was intended to be as Hallel, his Hebrew name, which is translated in both texts as Lucifer, meaning the same thing, the bringer of light, he was to be an instrument of light to the world in some way that the Bible doesn't go into in-depth details. But since all of the angels were created to facilitate the heirs of salvation on their way, on the journey to salvation, that includes him, they were all created for that purpose, and since he was a conduit of light or a bringer of light, we can understand that it's talking about the, the intellectual process and perhaps even the emotional process of coming to the knowledge of the truth of God, the light that God provides. And he was to be a facilitator of that, as were all of the angelic beings. He, revol- he, re- he resisted that, and he rebelled against it. And so now, instead of being a, a conduit of light, he has become a conduit of darkness. You follow me? My words, but that's what the book teaches. He now brings darkness. Instead of bringing clarity, the light of clarity, he now brings darkness and confusion. And the world has been sitting in darkness and confusion. And that's why Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 tells us that Satan the devil has indeed successfully deceived the whole world. And I just want to draw your attention to something that should be apparent. The book of Revelation is a Christian document written to the Christian church, and the subject matter in the book of Revelation is a struggle between a false church and the real church. So it's a Christian document written to the Christian church telling us that the world is deceived in regards to Christianity. That's the point. And the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And that's why it doesn't happen for everyone that you run into to try to share the truth with. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. And here's the verse I was working to. For God, the same one who said, let there be light. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, who said, let there be light, at some point, theoretically, and perhaps literally, said at some point, let there be light in David's mind. Let the light shine through to David. Let the light happen for Wayne. Let the light happen for Sandy. And it cannot happen any other way. At some point, God the Father must focus on you per these scriptures and what the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16. At some point, and this ought to inspire us all to think about it, realize that sovereign, almighty God whose glory and radiance is such that it's an unapproachable light. That great, awesome being that we've come to understand as Father must occupy you. You must occupy thinking in his mind. He must focus on you and be aware of you and look at you and think about you and determine whether or not you can do it. Determine whether or not you can handle it. Determine whether or not the clay is ready. And I like to use myself as examples when I'm preaching because, well, I know me pretty good. (laughs) And this clay was harder than the surface of this podium until it bumped into the walls of life enough times that the exterior of the clay got cracked open (laughs) and malleable and formable. And then the potter said, come to me. That's the way it happens. Now, your experience was different from mine. We're all unique. But God the Father must start the process and draw you and make the determination that you're ready and that you can handle the truth. Because in calling you and giving you the light and turning it on for you and and providing the face of Jesus Christ out of the confusion and darkness, now he must judge you. And he won't do that as a God of doubt. He knows what he's doing. When he called you, he knew as, as well as God can know that you could do it, that you were ready, or he wouldn't have called you. And that's why he's not reluctant to now judge us, because he knows we can do it, and he has equipped us. He made a, he made a determination as he looked at us. And then he went ahead and gave us an expanded heart and an expanded mind and power. He authorized us. He gave us the exosia and the dynamis to be able to do it. The love, the power, and the soundness of mind, the sanity. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, brethren, that must happen in your experience and in mine, and indeed it has. Now, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles over to Colossians, the book of Colossians. And at this point, I don't recall why I wanted to go there, but I sure must have a good reason. Colossians. All right, the book of Colossians. Oh, yes, chapter 1 of the book of Colossians. I want to break into the text of uh, verse 14 because it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, 
And then it goes into some descriptive terms here. And since we want to know what manner of man this is, since we want to consider him and learn more about him, have a deeper understanding, these are pertinent scripture. Verse 15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, which is perfectly commensurate with everything else that we're told about him, of course. He is, he is his father's son. And the word invisible is somewhat, uh, well, it's a little bit, uh, I, I won't say unnecessary. Uh, the, the, the fact is, the word literally means unseeable. It's uh, the unapproachable light. The word is eoratos, eoratos. And it doesn't mean invisible, especially in this context. It means unseeable. And we can, we can rely on that because we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ resides, dwells in, has residence in the unapproachable light of his Father. God's glory, the, what we're being told here, the exegesis is that God's radiance is such, the Shekinah glory that emanates from God, his brilliance, his holiness is such that it's unapproachable. It's not invisible, it's unseeable from the point of view of not being approachable. Are you following me? If you've ever tried to look at the sun, you know, when we had that eclipse, you had to wear dark glasses, you know. Uh, you, you, you can't look directly at it. That's the implication here from this and what we're told in the book of Second uh, Timothy as well. And he is the very image, he is the icon, the word is icon, he is the exact express representative of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now, this word firstborn is of great significance. It is prototakos in the Greek, and it literally translates as firstborn. But you see, the word firstborn makes no sense and cannot be used in a grammatical construction unless there's others that are going to be born. Follow me? There can't be a firstborn if there won't be others born. And then it goes on to speak about him some more here. For by him were all things created. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is indeed the creator. And we will verify that as we go along as well. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. By him all things emanate. This word, sunistau, for consist. God is spirit, we're told in John chapter 4, in verse 24, I believe it is. And the spirit that he is, from the spirit that he is, came creation. All that exists has emanated from him, for him by him, and he is before all of it, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn, the prototakos from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That is, he will have the preeminence among all who will indeed be born from the dead. That's what's being referenced, of course. Now, I want to point out something to you here. This and other scriptures that tell us that all that was created 
was created by the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Word, and without him nothing was created that has been created. That means we can stop and do some, uh, do some uh, incision here and go into God's Word. You know. That means that even heaven had to be created. Heaven is not eternal. The angels are not eternal. God tells us through the prophet Isaiah that God inhabits eternity and that he's unique as well and that there's none beside him. Yeah. Nothing else is eternal. Heaven is not eternal. It did not always exist. The angels did not always exist. God brought the environment of heaven, an existential dwelling for the angelic realm, for their own sense of purpose and being, for their own ability to have a, a, a place to receive orders, if nothing else. Heaven is necessary for the angelic realm and for the mission God has given them, for the estate to which they were created, which is indeed heaven and the function that he created them for. Following me? God doesn't need heaven. He is omnipresent. David said, no matter where I go, what I experience, you're there. Even if I'm in the grave, you're there. I can't get away from you. You're always there. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipowerful as well, without limitations. There are no limitations to God. Heaven had to come into existence, and all the thrones and dominions and beings and principalities and everything in heaven had to be created, and there had to be a reason for it. There had to be a purpose for it, and the purpose is in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the monogenous, the singular one-time-and-one-time-only event, wherein for those who would believe, they didn't have to perish, but they could have eternal life. And I'll have more to say about that. But it goes on here to tell us that he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that he has the preeminence amongst all of them who will indeed be born from the dead. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. When people, you know, there's a controversy. After 2,000 years of preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, there are still denominations who deny his divinity, who don't know who he is, who cannot explain correctly the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to spend a little bit of time on that when we turn to the book of John. But first of all, uh, I want to continue here. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And then look what it says here in verse 9 of chapter 2. For in him, again, referencing Jesus Christ, in him dwells all, all, that's all-inclusive, all means all, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so when people say, well, is Jesus God? Asking the question shows your ignorance. Yes, indeed, he is. He is indeed God. Verse 10, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And so it's very, very important that we understand that because I'll just reference it. I won't turn there. Do you recall that uh, when Jesus was being confronted by the, the naysayers and the Pharisees and others, 
and uh, they doubted his parentage. And remember, they said, well, we know who our father was, uh, implying that he didn't even know and that sort of thing. And the Lord said, if you don't know, if you don't genasco, if you don't come to comprehend, if you don't know with clarity that indeed I am, you will die in your sins. Is it important to know exactly who the Lord Jesus Christ is? Is it, to know of, is it important to know of his authenticity? It is. It is indeed. And there can be no salvation without knowing who he is and knowing your Lord. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, if you would, brethren, turn with me, like, like I said, over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This very famous scripture that I've already quoted is, uh, you know, I remember learning it as a child in Sunday school, this and other verses. It's very famous, and very few people really truly understand it. It has been so incorrectly preached for so long, but let me break into the text here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That that premise didn't just become true as John wrote those words down. That, that truth here so stated existed before man existed. God already knew in past eternity that this would be necessary. In past eternity, our omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, everywhere present God already comprehended what he would have to do to facilitate a successful plan to do what he wanted to do and accomplish his goal. And he knew that there would have to be a fail-safe. If I make man in my image, I can make him look like me, and I can, I can give him a, a brain to make him have a limited function like me, to come to decisions and conclusions on his own, to have free moral agency. But he won't have my character. He won't have my morality. He won't know what I know. He won't have my mind. He won't have my person. He'll be clay, and he'll screw it up. He'll make a mess of it. He'll do it wrong. And before the world was, it was already determined at the throne of God by our all-knowing God what would be necessary. There has to be a fail-safe. And I can imagine, and allow me to just imagine it for you, that the one that we've come to know is God our Father, and God the Word, who we've come to know as the Lord Jesus Christ, in their duality and in their oneness as Elohim, that uniplural word, with no limit to the number, can we imagine perhaps that at some point, and we know they communicate, at some point in past eternity, when nothing else existed except God, because God and God alone is eternal, before the first molecule of matter, before the first spirit being, before heaven, at some point in past eternity, they said to each other as they commiserated in their oneness and in their love and in their spirit purpose. And they said, I'll have to go down there and become one of them because they're going to screw it up. If we're going to make man in our image after our likeness, 
they will need a fail-safe. And so the concept of grace was already in the formula. Before anything came into existence, God's grace was already apparent. And it would require a most gracious plan. And when, when God was formulating the plan, he of a necessity had to construct the idea in his own mind of death. Think about that. One of the most original thoughts in God's mind was death because nothing existed that could die. Death was a concept that did not exist. God is eternal, immortal, eternal. And God, when he thought of death, the first time it occurred to him as part of a fail-safe so that he could complete the mission, he was thinking of himself. And when you, com- when you really comprehend that, then the love mentioned here in John 3.16 takes on bigger proportions for you. How much love? <laughs> there aren't enough words. How much, how much love? Agape, God love, on an unlimited scale. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the monogenous, the singular one-time and one-time only event of a physical progeny from God the Father. He's the only physical progeny through a flesh and blood human being. It's unique. Never before and never again. We can be begotten spiritually, but the Lord Jesus Christ was physically begotten in the womb of that young Jewish girl named Mary and became the monogenous, the only begotten son. And he gave him so that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, there will be preachers tomorrow throughout Christendom, throughout all the different denominations, many of whom will be saying that, see there, all you got to do is believe. Believe in the Lord. It's the Lord, belief, and nothing else. Charles Stanley must, must have said that about a half a million times by now. The Lord and belief and nothing else. Well, there's hundreds of millions of people on this planet who believe. Even the demons believe. And yet, there's something more. And we find it in the definition of the word. Believe. The word is paistiuan in the Greek. And it's of great significance. And I'm going to give you the grammar because... The grammar matters. The definition matters. It is a nominative case singular, masculine gender, present tense participle. Now, we're not scholars of the Greek language, but that's important because Greek has rules of grammar just like English does, and there are definitions of words just like there is in English. And this means something. It describes proactive involvement. It is a belief so intense that the Bible refers to it as faith, strong faith. The word for faith is paistis, and this is paistiyuan. And it is a faith that moves you. In other words, it, it motivates you. It's a proactive involvement. It's not just a cursory intellectual knowledge about Jesus Christ, that he is indeed the Son of God and the Messiah. You must have You must believe it in such a way that you do something about it. And that's what the Apostle James was talking about when he said, 
paistis, paistiuan. Without action is dead. You've got to be motivated. You've got to be involved. You've got to be a disciple. If we're going to follow him, he has given us disciplines. Are there things to do? You bet your life. And I say that deliberately for the effect. You bet your life there are things that we must do. Yes. And so, brethren, if you would, turn with me now over to uh, 1 John. Turn with me to 1 John. I want to expound something in closing from 1 John. Are you in 1 John? Where you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to be in John chapter (laughs) 1. John chapter 1. I beg your pardon. See, that's what, that's what happens when you just write down Scripture reference and you have no notes. In John chapter 1, this is what I wanted to share with you. John chapter 1. It tells us that in the beginning was the Word. And that's verification of what I was talking about before. The beginning of what? Well, the beginning of everything. The beginning of creation. The beginning of the plan. The beginning of heaven. The beginning of time. Time being the first necessary element of creation. It takes time. It takes so much time to give a sermon. It takes so much time to listen to one. It takes time for the basic primary building block of the universe, which is the hydrogen atom... You have, you have a nucleus and you have one electron. It is not complete until that circuit is made. Are you following me? And it actually takes an amount, an, a measurable amount of time for that orbit to happen. Everything requires time. Everything is cause and effect. Everything is action and reaction. And of a necessity, God set time in motion. He set chronology in motion in order for the creation to ride upon it and be able to exist. In the beginning was the Word. And so at the very beginning, we see that the Word was there. God the Word was there. And the Word was with God. Let me read that to you as it would be from the Greek, as the manuscript actually states it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was tan-theon. Tan-theon. That literally means with the deity, with the God. Now, people will misuse that to try and put forth ideas that are not sound, of course. But what we're being told here is that in the very beginning, God the Word... And this other one that also references God, they were there together in the deity that God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And the word there in the Shema 
in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6, that word is not yachid, which is the Hebrew word for one. And it can never mean anything but one. It is the number one, like one digit. But it's not that word. The word is ikad. And that is a word that, when it is translated as one, must be understood in the context of one group, one church, one army, one God, clearly representing Father and Son. And then when you consider the concept by which they call themselves, and it is a concept, Eloim, which is the plural of Eloah, which is God's singular. And that's an open-ended number. And that's why Jesus Christ said, you are all Elohim. Yes. We have the potential to join God and become part of the greater God family and be joined to him in Elohim. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the deity. The Word was the deity. The Word was there with the deity. They together were the deity. He was with the God, and the Word was God. He was Theos. Very, very important. The same was in the beginning with the deity, Tan Theon. And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What manner of man is this? He's God the Word, the Creator. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Because life was in him and comes from him, and only him, his life was efficacious at the cross for all of us. Because of his life having that value over and above all life, animal or human, or, or for that matter, the, the, the plant kingdom, all, everything that's living, including even the angelic realm, gets its life from the life giver. And that's why when his life was sacrificed, that is efficacious for all the sins that have ever been committed, currently are being committed, or ever shall be committed. And it supersedes and transcends the Levitical priesthood, of course, and the sacrifice of animals. And that's why Jesus Christ was able to say, don't think that I came to destroy the Torah. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fill it full. Christ fills it full. He is the, he is the one who is the brazen laver. He is the red heifer. He is the ashes necessary. He is the blue thread in their garment. He is the blood. He is everything. He is the burnt offering. He is the Holocaust. We can now understand and see all of that through Jesus Christ. He transcends and supersedes all of that. That's what fulfillment means. And in the beginning, we're told that everything was made by him, and without him was not anything made, and that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And it still doesn't. The world still does not get it, brethren. And it goes on to tell us there was a man sent from God. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He, John, was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. 
And, and I submit to you, brethren, that the world still does not know him. Because as I expounded at the beginning of this sermon, you can't properly know him, you can't authentically know him without God the Father's direct intervention in your life to turn on the light necessary to illuminate the face of Christ, the understanding of Christ, in a reality that you can actually grasp and understand. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, exousia, authority, to become the sons of God, even to them that paisteioan on his name. And I wanted to uh, comment on this word received, because it's of great significance. The Greek word is lambano, and it literally means to take hold of something, to pull something to your breast. It means to reach out. That word could even be used in a Greek construction to imply greed. In other words, we must receive him, we must take him, we must reach out for we must want him, we must reach out to him, to receive him, to accept and take hold of him. And that takes my mind to what Jacob did when he wrestled in the dirt with God. Jacob was, in effect, lambano in that instance. When he wrestled with God in the dirt, he would not let go. He had a lambano grip. He had a, he had a, a selfish grip. He would not let go. And he said, I won't let you go unless you give me the blessing. And God was so impressed by that, he said, from now on, you will be Israel. And in that, in that moment, we can see something. Anyone of any stripe, of any background, of any ethnicity, if you will embrace the God of Israel, if you will do what Jacob did, if you will lambano the God of Israel and refuse to let go and stubbornly cling to him no matter how many twists and turns in the dirt you might go through. If you won't let go of him, boy, that impresses him. And if you won't let go of him, like Jacob, then by God's definition, you're an Israelite. Yes. Which means, in translation, a prince or princess who has found favor with God and man. Yes. Very, very significant. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were, or who were, will be, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that's in our future, literally, to be born of God. And the word was made flesh. The word came to be flesh. The word was translated into flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, brethren, I hope I've given you some things to think about and some deeper understanding, perhaps, on some Christian theology that perhaps you didn't have before. God be with you.